Okay. Okay, everyone. Uh, so if you're at the back and want to join us, please do come and take a seat. If you're in the reception area and you want to join us, please do come and take a seat. Feel free to stay for as long or as little as you're able to. Let me introduce then uh, Richard Dunning, who is a member of this congregation. Uh, some of you will know him, some of you won't. Richard, thank you so much for coming. And uh, we're going to have a little interview now and uh, we'll show a few pictures as well. And this is a chance for us to find out about this amazing ministry. And I, I just found out, in fact, my father-in-law, who is here this morning, he has visited the crater, as has my wife, although she was too young to know it. And uh, we're going to hear about it now. So Richard, please do take a seat and welcome. So, Richard, can I begin by just asking you how long you've been at St. Saviour's? Um, I've been probably 11 years. I came here and did an Alpha course with some friends, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's gone amazingly fast. Yep. Wow. Okay. And um, before we sort of hear your story, I, I want to ask you a few questions to sort of set context uh, about uh, the place that you're going to be talking about. So, uh, first of all, we've got a picture on the screen, if we can have the first picture. Now this is a map where that little marker is. That is the site of the crater. Richard, can you just tell us a little bit about what it is like? And we've got two further pictures, so when you want us to move on to those, do say so. And, uh, yeah, and what it looks like. Okay. I think if we move on to the, um, the second photo, the aerial shot. There it is. Um, it is right in the middle of the Somme battlefield. Those who in the last few weeks or months have been seeing a plethora of programs on the, on the centenary. Um, it's an interesting place for a variety of reasons, but it is absolutely in the middle of the Somme, uh, the battlefield. It is under the German front line. So what you see there is on the right, the lane is the German front line. On the left, you can see a faint white mark of the trenches. This was taken in 1974, um, which was the British line. And what you see is the, if you like, the killing fields, as it were, where the men had to raise up. We, we, we all know the story, um, and walk towards it. The mine was blown um, two minutes before zero, 7.28 on the 1st of July, and its aim was to destroy uh, one of the German strong points. Um, we know that all the way up and down the front, the Germans had turned the villages into fortresses. So um, it, and it succeeded to a degree, uh, but of course, you know, uh, in that, uh, in the first hour, more men were killed there than there were allies killed on D-Day, a man for every half a yard. Yeah. Okay, and um, just, for, for kind of historical uh, sort of interest, how did the Battle of the Somme end up? What happened? The, um, the plan was that the troops would, would uh, get to the objective, um, Bapoim, 12 miles away, um, probably in about 10 days, and it took them to end of November. So the, the, the tragedy, the troops actually got into the crater, which was quite unusual up and down the front because I think 90, 5% of the front they were repulsed. 
the Germans, um, brave as our chaps, um, had the machine guns ready, and we know the story. But uh, they did get into the crater and uh, held it, and from there they slogged um, 11 miles maybe, um, uh, and uh, the, the losses continued the whole way. And the tragedy of it is that whereas it took uh, five months to capture it, um, in 1918, when the Germans attacked, it took less than half a day to lose it. And the whole, uh, the tragedy of it is, is that it was for nothing, but you know, there's different points of view on this, but it, um, because it's positioned in the center of the battlefield, I think it is quite significant still. Mm. And what is the significance of the Battle of the Somme in, in the context of the whole war? What happened, and, and as part of the tragedy, is that um, all the troops, 120,000 troops that went over on the 1st of July, were all PALS battalions. They had all uh, joined up. They'd answered Kitchener's call in 1914, and they had um, joined up together. But perhaps more than that, they had all grown up together, and they had... A lot of them were born and, and, and went to school in the same streets and in the towns and, and cities throughout the land. The impact of it, of course, is that the 75% casualties that were at the crater, when a man fell, he actually fell um, next to someone um, who lived in the next house. So the whole tragedy of that, that battle, the cream of Edwardian youth were cut down, decimated in maybe two or three hours. Um, but more than that, the communities were destroyed because the men who fell um, were in groups, all their families knew each other, and you could only argue that one of the few benefits is that the mourning uh, and grieving that went on, um, there was support. But, by golly, as a system, they thought the, uh, the morale would be improved. But, of course, when the guns started cutting them down, uh, the effect on, on uh, our nation, really, but across Europe, um, I don't think we've ever recovered. Okay, Richard. Well, I think this would be a good moment for you, perhaps, to just tell your story of how you came to be involved in this site. What I've got here um, is something I wrote uh, two or three months ago. First time I'd ever written it down. This is the third time I've shared it. Um, the story of how I got uh, bought the crater, many will know and certainly have bought the life group with it on many occasions. But I, um, in the early 70s, 1970, 71, I went across to... Um, the States, hadn't been anywhere, working class kid, didn't know much about anything, took myself off uh, on my own, got wrapped up in uh, the, the Watts riots in Chicago, some may remember. Um, awful time, buildings burning and um, someone tried to mug me. I went to a corner, took out a small book, the only book I had brought with me, which was The Old Front Line by John Macefield. Opened it randomly, was very stressed, um, and I read three lines about the crater. Mm, sort of something happened. Um, I didn't know what. Uh, all I knew, um, I got back to New York that uh, next day, uh, London the next day, Monday morning. Um, I set out to find this place. 
Um, didn't know where it was, I knew it was near a town called Albert. Um, I set out, didn't have any maps. Um, got lost over there, um, went up a lane, climbed a fence, a small hill to get my bearings, and I was there. So when people say, oh, you know, did I, when did I get it? Hey, that place got me 4,000 miles, three days without a map. So there, um, and I started to visit um, 10, 12 times a year, um, never thinking that I would be able to own it. I did um, try and buy a tiny piece of the Somme, just a few feet, uh, and wrote 200 letters to mayors and um, uh, notaries. Nothing, nothing at all. Um, and then a lucky one that one of the farmers was going to fill it in and the letter um, was on the notary's desk when he went in to get permission. So again, you, you know, these things happen, they're destiny. The first um, anniversary, there were two of us there, July the 1st, next year four, then eight, then 16, and last year there were 3,000, year before that there were 4,000, 330,000 visitors a year. But all the time I wondered um, what it was, and over the years um, uh, started to work it out, but I'd never shared it with anybody, maybe one or two people, but only informally. I wrote it down um, and uh, just share with you that it took 15 readings at home before I could um, read it without crying. So um, bear with me if you will. It tells the story um, of uh, across half a century really um, on there. So if I may, I would like to read it now. I've called it um, a huge hole in my life. It says, this testimony <coughs> links events that took place over 50 years apart, and it includes when I was a young boy in the late 1950s, having what I still believe was an experience of the Holy Spirit. Recently, I've been reflecting on how all these events fall into place and begin to fit together. I think there's been a plan unfolding, and still is. And it shows to me that God doesn't waste a moment of our lives, no matter how painful they are. When I was 12 years old, my beloved mom developed a brain tumor. She died two years later, having suffered in agony for most of that time. They only diagnosed the tumor a few weeks before she died, when at last they took an x-ray. Before then, they thought she was mentally ill and repeatedly gave her electric shock treatment. As was often the custom in those days, children were told nothing about what was happening and neither was I. Every time I asked how mum was, all I was told was about the same. And every day on the way home from school, I used to pause on Battersea Bridge and pray for her to be better, but she only got worse. Towards the very end, I sensed something serious was happening. She was transferred to Atkinson Morley Hospital and on a late cold and foggy March evening, Dad and I went to see her. I didn't know it was to be for the last time. On the way to the hospital, we stopped off at Westminster Cathedral as my dad had taken up Catholicism in a struggle to understand why his beloved wife was suffering so much. 
Often the pain was so severe that mum used to scream for hours, begging dad to kill her while I stood on and looked helplessly on. That night in the empty cathedral, we lit two candles for her and my dad said a silent prayer. When we got to the hospital, we were met by the nursing sister who said to dad, she's just had a major operation, there's no hope, she can't wake up, she'll only last a few more minutes. Again, nothing was said to me. Moments later, mum was wheeled out of the theater by two young nurses. The sister stood by, and we could see that a large, blood-soaked dressing had been laid over mum's head, and it was obvious that there was a huge, deep hole beneath it. For a few moments, we stood there beside the trolley, totally shocked. Then, to our amazement, mum turned her head and quietly said, thank you for the candles. The sister heard it and just stared in stunned disbelief. Totally puzzled, I remember thinking, how did she know that? She was then wheeled away to the ward and my dad went with her and he returned a few minutes later but didn't say anything. When we got home, he just said to me, mum's gone. In my presence, she was never ever mentioned or referred to again by my dad or by any of the family to me almost 30 years. The day after the funeral, a little flat, which for the past two years had been so full of relatives as they took turns to care for mum, was suddenly very silent and empty. My dad worked odd hours on shift work for London Transport. Alone, I got up early, feeling totally lost, and remember opening the dressing table drawer with her clothes in and just gently laying my head on them to feel a little closer to her, anything to ease the pain. A little later, I tried to cook myself breakfast, but it all got burnt and I had to throw it away. Then suddenly, all the grief, pain, and sorrow that had been bottled up for months and months flooded out. Mum and I had been very close. I just stood there in total despair, racked with uncontrollable sobbing. The final realization of life without her was unbearable. Then I was aware of a very strange sensation. Starting from the top of my head, a sort of heavy, warm, silvery feeling started to slowly descend through my body. As it moved downwards, I began to feel like I was being embraced and gently held and the pain slowly eased and was replaced by a sensation of deep peace. I stood there for several minutes with this wonderful glowing feeling throughout my whole body. I didn't understand it from that, but from that moment on, I knew that God was real and that he loved me. A little later, I went off to school. Uh, Dad was great, he did his best. But over the coming weeks and months, life became increasingly difficult as unsupervised and as I now know, traumatized, I started to play truant and went off the rails. Those two years of unexpressed grief in losing mum played havoc with my young mind and caused me problems for many years. But I never forgot that wonderful feeling of peace when I was at my lowest ebb. So I somehow carried on without mum, but with this huge hole in my life. In my 20s, I became a Quaker for several years, and many decades later, whilst alone in a spiritual retreat, I had a strange vision 
I was a young boy again, back in the bedroom at home. Mom was screaming in terrible pain from the tumor as she often did. My dad was holding her and, to my surprise, to one side, the figure of Jesus was standing there dressed in long brown robes, looking on with an expression of deep compassion. When he looked round at me, I realized with a shock that I had somehow blamed him all these years for deserting us when we needed him the most. The moment I realized he had been there with us all the time, his long brown robes slowly turned to white. Deep in my mind, I was always haunted by that last sight of my mum waiting outside the operating theater. However, life went on. I went to art school, got a job in advertising. Lots of good things happened and a few truly awful things, but that's life. Fast forward 12 years later, um, and as a kid who hadn't been anywhere, took off on my own um, for a holiday touring America. On the way back to New York, I ended up at a bus station in Chicago that I've mentioned during the riots, etc. I brought with me a small book, I opened it, and there was a description of this huge mine crater on the Somme battlefield. The crater was made when the British tunneled under the German lines and detonated 27 tons of explosive, which signaled the start of the Battle of the Somme in 1916, the tragic day when the British lost over 60,000 casualties. The mine crater called Loch Nagar, and it's still the world's largest crater ever made by man in anger. And when it was blown, it was the loudest sound, hard to imagine, made by man up until that point. Over 5,000 men died at Loch Nagar in a matter of minutes. In reading that book, I can't explain why the hair stood up on the back of my neck. Uh, mentioned here, flew to London, um, went over there a couple of days later, found myself standing on the lip of this enormous crater over 300 feet across, and I'd been guided to it. I returned to it time and time again over the years, and it became a spiritual home, a retreat. Finally, after a long struggle, I managed to buy it in 1978, and it's now permanently preserved and dedicated to reconciliation and peace. Then Loch Nagar was little known and rarely visited, but an extraordinary place of peace despite the suffering and carnage that took place there. Slowly over the years, more people came, and today it has over 300,000 visitors each year, and a million are going to pretty well confirm to be there by the end of 2018. So today, I believe it is a living symbol of the profound suffering of that war, and in 1986, a large wooden cross was put up there, made from the roof timbers from a deconsecrated church in Tyneside, where some of the men who fell at Loch Nagar would have worshipped. I always talk to any visitors over there, and uh, you talk to them, and it's all, <coughs> excuse me, it's all the same thing. They are invariably drawn there by deep compassion and empathy and a need to somehow understand and share the suffering. Often this vast blood-soaked wound on the battlefield can move people to tears. 
I think today many people who visit there carry within them a deep, unhealed wound of past pain, loss, or hurt. They might explain it by saying they've come to commemorate a relative or someone in the village war memorial, but actually I think the real reason people come to Loch Nagar in their tens of thousands is that the crater is a symbol, a metaphor. I think it powerfully represents our own suffering and loss, that vast hole that so many people today feel they have in their lives and more importantly in their relationship with God. The reconciliation that can take place there is not simply between warring nations, but between each of us and him. The process of quiet healing, I believe, can happen to every single visitor who stands there before the cross. And it may be, should we have the second photo of the, um, can we have that second aerial photo, yeah. Um, that's at the end of the ceremony each year, and that was two years ago when we started that. Last year there were nearly 3,000 people holding hands around the crater at the end of the ceremony. Remarkable moment when everybody links up and puts their hands, uh, their hands up. But everybody who goes to the crater stands before the cross. It's, it's not peculiar. It says here, amazing things happen there as well as um, this th a third of a million visitors each year. And the remembrance ceremony, there were 12 nations in, come each year for the, for the, the ceremony. And last year, um, we did a requiem service uh, there with Holy Communion, which was led by Russ Parker, who I'm sure you all know and um, uh, worked with uh, St. Saviour's as well last year. Remarkable man. Um, and finally, this last part. In 1916, 5,000 men died bravely at Loch Nagar, including, of course, the Germans. But it's not enough, I believe, to simply remember and commemorate the dead. I think God wants us to channel our love and compassion also for the living, and especially those innocent young people who are suffering today. Which is why now I'm in the process of finalizing a new charity which will be called Remembrance for Life. Its strapline is, for every man killed, a young life healed. Each of those million or so visitors will be invited to give a small sum, this could raise over a million pounds, to honor each of the 5,000 men who died at Loch Nagar. The money will be distributed to 5,000 desperately sick, innocent children suffering needlessly today through lack of funds throughout the UK and also symbolically in Germany, France and the Commonwealth. So this last part here. Over half a century has passed since, as a kid, I stared in horror at the blood-soaked wound on my dear lovely mum. Over the years, I believe God guided me to find and buy the crater, and he has transformed it into a place of peace, reconciliation, and healing, a place where the Holy Spirit is able to touch and heal each and every hurting visitor. Last year, the old cross blew down, put a new one up, 22 feet high. And at the end of the ceremony, um, the pastor, the chaplain, we have a Christian ceremony at the remembrancing, um, blessed the cross, and we had a French 
person, a German person and a British person, placed their hands on the cross and uh, the chaplain, something happened. The Holy Spirit was there and quite remarkable. Incidentally, the German person, who was a lady, a judge, hated me, had hated me for eight years. Hard to imagine, I know, but she did. Every year I tried to be friendly to her. Every year she turned away. Never knew what I did, and I gave up that year. I tried once more, and she, before the ceremony, he blessed the cross. The first thing she did, she came up and started speaking to me as though I was her best friend. Interesting, and she has done since. So, um, Right, Loch Nagar was once a place of unimaginable suffering, of young lives tragically cut short. Perhaps with this new charity, a sick child somewhere may emerge from an operating theater, bandaged and blooded, but given the gift of a long and fulfilled life. And perhaps then, some of the young men who fell at Loch Nagar may not have died in vain. This journey has been a long, hard, and sometimes painful process. With this testimony, I've tried to step back and make sense of it all. I think God planned this mission for me long ago, and I firmly think he empowered and equipped me for the task every single step of the way. Only today, Lotnagar can play a small part in helping to heal the wounds of that war. And a PS to this, this last part. For the past 12 years, I've done a day a week at a local care home for the disabled running art therapy group. On the first day there, I arrived and saw an old lady slumped in a wheelchair uh, in the corner. She did look a bit fearsome, and I was told, uh, always give her a clear berth as she could be a bit unpredictable. To my surprise, she suddenly looked up and said, why are you here? I said I'd come to talk about art, and would she like to come? She said she would, and from that moment, we became the best and dearest of friends. Despite suffering several bad strokes, diabetes, and cancer, she had a mind and memory that was amazing. Every week after my session, I'd take her out for a long walk in her wheelchair along those leafy Surrey lanes, which she loved. I knew that she'd been a senior midwife much earlier. I asked her where she did her nursing training. She said, St. George's Hospital, and then Atkinson Morley, starting as a junior theater nurse. I asked her when she was there, and she said from 1958 to 1959. Intrigued, I told her my mum had an operation there in March 1959. She looked up at me for a very long time. Then she slowly said, I remember late at night, a poor woman they operated on. They didn't need to. And a man and a boy standing there with raincoats on. Then we took her back into the ward and left her alone with the man to say his goodbye. I believe that the young nurse who lovingly wheeled my dying mum from the operating theater all those years ago was the same lady who, each week, 
I had been lovingly wheeling around the leafy lanes of Surrey. Indeed, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Richard, thank you so much for sharing your story. Can I just ask, I'd love to pray for you as we, as we finish. What would you like me to pray for? I think really, um, I'm helped by a lot of people over at the crater, like as a reflection of society, many of them are agnostics, quite a few are atheists, and as an example, I told Tom in the week, as an example, when the new cross was put up two years ago, I said to two of them I knew were atheists, are you okay with this? You know, you like the, the cross and it's always, we love it because it has no religious connotations. <laughs> I, Tom, if you could somehow, of those, all those people that come as part of that healing process, um, in the next few weeks, a labyrinth will be started six areas, um, remembrance, compassion, forgiveness, reconciliation, healing, and wholeness, that everybody who comes, those million people who come before the cross and who walk round, if you, how do we, when they get to the end, they are in a place where he can take over. Mm. Okay, I will pray for that now. Father, thank you for the extraordinary way in which you have led Richard to initiate this ministry, that you've confirmed that your hand is upon his life, for the way that you brought him into contact with that woman who pushed the trolley in which his, his mother spent her final hours. Lord, thank you that you are a God who knows everything, who loves us deeply, who speaks across ethnic and national boundaries, who brings healing whenever those in need of healing open themselves up to him. And so, Lord, we pray for this crater. We pray for the labyrinth. We pray for the million visitors who are expected to come. And, Lord, just as you revealed yourself to Richard, would you reveal yourself to every one of them? And Father, we pray that whatever support they need, whatever actions you want to prompt them to take, to explore faith and know you better, Lord, would you lead, that to, lead them to that? Would you give the words to say to everyone who comes in contact with those who meet with you at that place? And Father, might you begin journeys of reconciliation with each other, but most of all with you, for every person that you draw to that place. We pray for a harvest field. We pray for life in that place where once death was so present. And we thank you, Lord, for us being able to share this story today. And I pray your blessing upon Richard as he seeks to honour you, 
to discern the direction that you want that ministry to take. And I pray that every day you would pour your blessing upon him, reveal your love to him, and sustain him through all that he goes through in that role. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks everyone for coming. I hope you are glad that you stayed behind and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week.